0: Hi, this is Matthew. Just a quick note before we get on with this episode. During the recording of this, we suffered from a little bit of background noise and volume issues on one of the channels coming in. I've cleaned up the episode and adjusted the volume as best as I can, but there'll be a couple of points where you can notice that there is a bit of issue with background noise and a bit of issue with volume levels. I can only apologise for not being the perfect audio technician that I wish I was. I hope you'll uh, forgive me for for that slight imperfection. Other than that, the episode is uh, fully audible. Comments as usual, to the usual place. And with that said, please do enjoy what is genuinely a a really interesting and enjoyable philosophical conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ask An if Anything. This is the English one, Matthew, with my usual co-host Andrew. Say hello to our lovely listeners, Andrew. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We've got two guests uh, today. One of the guests will be familiar to many of our listeners. Dale. Hello, Dale. Welcome back.
1: Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me back on.
0: And uh, you've managed to pull us uh, a decent guest for us uh, to join on the show today. Is uh, Paul? Hello, Paul. Please introduce yourself. Oh, hey, hey guys. Uh, really nice to be here. Thank you, Paul. And tell us a little bit about yourself so that uh, people know know who you are and what you're about.
2: Sure. Uh, I guess uh, the most uh, immediate relevant detail is I was um, <clears throat> Dale's teacher, I guess technically still am, <laughs> um, yeah. at, at, uh, um, at uh, university here. And, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I've, I've been teaching philosophy here for, uh, you know, about 15 years. Years now, well, my background is definitely in, uh, in academic philosophy. I guess Ooh, tell
3: us more about that. Tell us, tell us about the uh, your academic background in philosophy. I love it. Yeah, um, for, for sure.
2: Um, I guess um, like a lot of people, I, I discovered philosophy in in university. Um, I, I knew it was out there. I think I knew in high school I was gravitating towards something humanities. Focused and then once I took philosophy in university, I realized that was my own discipline, which seemed to give freedom to really ask ask big questions. So I've I've kind of uh, philosophy all my life since taking those first courses in graduate school. I ended up focusing a little bit in philosophy of religion, though in this weird uh, kind of uh, middle area, elements of what's what's called you know analytic philosophy of religion, which We've all be pretty familiar with, I think, especially Dale, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, elements of sort of more the continental French-German phenomenological tradition. My my graduate work ended up focusing a bit on, I guess you could call it, the, the epistemology of mystical experience, certainty, possibility of certainty through through special uh, intense mystic type experiences. And there's a sort of comparative element in that. Not that I'm a scholar of History of religions, but they're you know almost as case studies. I looked at uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, and some of her reports, and then from the east, I looked at some of uh, Shankara's um, reports, unitive, unitive mystical experience. Anyway, that's my that's my uh, background uh, leading up to my teaching vocation, um, and uh, pretty soon after I got out of my my doctoral program, I landed some, uh, you know contract type work here at, uh, are we naming the universe?
1: Uh, yeah, that, that's fine. If you that's want That's fine. Know. Okay. Everything's fine.
2: Yeah. Um, um, here at, here at Ryerson, uh, started teaching back in, oh, I guess it was around 2005.
3: Well, thank you. Um, thank you for joining us on really what is a, a pretty small podcast. And, you know, we, we grow a little each week. Um, so, uh, the truth is that you're probably uh, more talented than we deserve. But uh, thank, you, thank you, thank you for <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Anyway,
2: don't don't say that. Um, I've, I've been listening to a bit of bit of your archive, um, and uh, the, the level of conversation is uh, really impressive. I'm honored to be on it.
0: Oh, well, thank we're,
3: we're you, hon- Paul. I appreciate that. We're honored to have you. So I, I've got to say something. Uh, I've got to say something about Dale. So usually this is where uh, this is where two friends uh, sort of poke fun at each other right but I'm guessing that Dale was actually a uh, quite a good student
2: right I, I, sh- I wanted to say more about that actually yeah that uh, D- Dale stood out pretty quickly uh, in the first course he took uh, with me, which was as a special student you know as someone who really was you know, more like a peer. Yeah, yeah I was saying in fact I, I took advantage of
4: Dale
2: <laughs> in, in the most recent course the second course you've been taking with me which is it's sort of an intro to philosophy course focused on problems. And I got Dale to really co-teach a class.
3: Oh, very nice.
2: Um, we did kind of a podcast-style conversation.
3: That's, uh, in, in fact, I'll tell you that I, I don't know if Dale would, would say this for himself, but he was he was happy enough about that interaction. I, I, Dale, I don't, I don't remember where you said something about it. Maybe it was on one of the forums that we, that we participated in or, or whatever, but uh, I'll say that from the casual readers perspective that seemed like an important moment for you Dale
1: yeah absolutely so as, as Paul knows I, I've had no experience really sort of uh, speaking in front of a large group about these things in a live audience obviously I've had experience podcasting but that that's sort of different in my opinion so yeah I was really grateful that Paul gave me the opportunity to to do that and I thought I thought it went great I was just really thankful that he, gave me that opportunity. So, yeah, th- thank you very much for that, Paul.
2: Oh, that was, that went was really well. Dale did a great job. I think the students really liked having him up there and having his, his angle and his clarity. Yeah. It's also great for them to see sort of one of their own, you know, <laughs> from their side of the room, yeah. um, get up to the front and perform at that level. It, um, it um,
3: We had a, as usual with Ask with, uh, asking Atheist Anything, I think the listeners know that we send around Notes ahead of time, agree on format and, and topic and that sort of thing. Matthew, is it, is it time for us to, um.
0: Yeah, let's get do into that. This? Let's do that.
3: Okay. All right. So I was, I was sort of designated to introduce the, the first topic here. So I guess I will. One of the things that became apparent when we were uh, sharing emails in the run up uh, to this show was we've all had some, um, some rocky experiences with, uh, with self expression of our worldviews, right? And the 4A listeners will be aware of Dale's experience uh, over on the Unbelievable Boards and and in other podcasts. So, they, Dale, you were on The Smalley Show and on Right to Reason, right? I, I don't know if there are others at this point other than Skeptics and Sleepers. There have been uh, some very vocal oppositions to your right to uh, tell your story from your perspective. Right, mm-hmm. And and in fact, there is a there's a particular person and I, I, I don't I don't think it's worth calling attention to who it is because I don't I don't really want people to seek that out. Right. But yeah. you've actually sort of got an Internet stalker to, to some extent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'll tell you that Matthew and I offered that person that I'm that I'm deliberately not naming. We offered that person an opportunity to come on to 4A. Just like the four of us are here, and to uh, to tell the story about why that individual is, in my view, acting in in quite a uh, being quite um, almost persecuting you, if I'm being honest. And the threats have have gone pretty deep. The, the threats have gone uh, as far as to um, uh, to sort of report your views to the university administration. And by the way, I think it's uh, quite a brave act on on both of your parts to be able to say what university you're associated with, given, uh, you know, given that sort of dust up. But, and, and then Paul, you've got, you've got your experience um, teaching and uh, what has happened with, you know, your are sharing your views, right? And and maybe we'll get into some of that. I will tell you that I only just came out as an atheist last weekend to the rest of my family. There are lots of people that I couldn't come out to for fear of, of loss of community. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I may tell the story here in a minute. Um, and I, I think Matthew's, uh, you know, has in the past, although I think Matthew's completely out now. Uh, so, Matthew, maybe you need to tell your story about whether you've had any experiences about not being able to freely express yourself. But I hoped to take a minute uh, in, in warm up for our other more philosophical topics. To talk about the right to freedom of expression and, and why it's important, um, because we've got, it, we've got at least two different moral views represented here. We've got a, a theistic view and a non-theistic view, but I don't think we all share all of the aspects of any one of those views. right? So we've got four opinions here, and we've all experienced some level of, uh, some level of pushback in terms of freedom of speech. And, and so I hope to talk about that because I think that it's a, a big issue mm-hmm. facing both of our groups right now.
0: So, okay,
3: there's the grenade. Who wants to jump on it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing that I, I would say uh, on, on that subject is um, mostly we're, I think we're aiming to discuss uh, philosophy here. And, um, but, and, and Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't, isn't the whole point of philosophy to have the freedom to discuss anything and everything so you see which ideas bubble to the top? So if there, are, if there are segments of ideas which are deemed so tasteful that you're not allowed to go there, doesn't that cut off some of the benefits that philosophy and ph- philosophical discussion gives us as a society?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the way I increasingly... Think about how to define philosophy uh just um sort of operation as a a very free playroom for ideas that means not just the freedom to talk about ideas that might be offensive but just more epistemically freedom to talk about very speculative ideas um, the freedom to, to dwell uh impractically on foundational questions and sciences um but, but certainly that includes the freedom to you know, especially in the hypothetical mode. If not in philosophy, then where?
3: So Dale, do you want to talk at all about about what has happened in, in your ability to express yourself and the sort of attention? It, by the way, this is a there's no compulsory reason for you to do so. If you want to avoid uh, if you want to avoid this or not talk about it, I don't want to cast it negatively by. You know, avoidance here isn't uh, isn't an accusation. If it's something that you'd rather not discuss, we can put a period on it here, and and we can move on and let Matthew interde- uh, introduce the next the next idea.
1: No, uh, no, I'm I'm happy to share my experience. I, I know um, before we, we did this, um, I was sort of hesitant, just in light of the threat that you know a secular university could find out, and, and that could have real consequences. But um, at the end of the day, I, I truly believe in free speech. And also, additionally, as a Christian, I, I think it's really important to get out there and, and share these ideas because people's salvation is, is at stake. So, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to sort of give my take on free speech and, and not censor myself because I, I agree 100 percent with Matt and with what Paul said, you know, especially with philosophy. We get out there, we get into the controversial Ideas, we you know we aren't afraid to tackle any issue, no matter how tough or offensive it might be. So yeah, I think the the benefits of being willing to engage in that are worth the costs or potential costs um, in in that regard. So when it comes to free speech, I very much stress a, a, an open hand in dialogue. I'm very I don't want there to be any restrictions. I think it's ridiculous that, you know, that just because I have this opinion, there is a possibility that I can not achieve my career goals or something like that. Like, I think that's getting a bit too, it's getting stupid, I, I think, right? So I, I agree with the way our laws are, are on the books right now. Sure, there are some restrictions, like if you're advocating for violence to hurt someone or to harm someone, like a, a financial threat or something like that. But Apart from that, just sharing our ideas and our fundamental beliefs in, in a honest, sincere dialogue, th- there shouldn't be any restrictions on that sort of thing. So, yeah, that, that's sort of my fundamental view on, on this.
3: One of the things that I think we've all uh, that we've all suffered, and the reason the reason I even bring this up is uh, we have all uh, either had the threat of, or actually suffered some loss of, uh, uh, at minimum, some loss of community, and uh, and. Maybe in Paul's case, some financial repercussions from from just open sharing of personal opinion when when those things don't actually impinge on anyone else's rights or freedoms to practice their own lives, uh, or or to you know to engage in whatever uh, whatever form of lifestyle they want to engage in, right? So, um, this has been a big issue in the in the news. It's uh, you know. Uh, we need to do a better job about letting people speak and being willing to uh, being willing to integrate new ideas and and so hopefully uh, hopefully that's good enough warm up Matthew if you want to round that off and and uh, head into our first topic of philosophy.
0: There's a question I'd like to ask on this area of uh, of free speech. I have my own opinion here, and it'll be interesting to see how your other opinions uh, align with mine i i'm all for the exchange of of ideas especially ideas that we're uncomfortable with because if we're not challenged by an idea that makes us uncomfortable we don't we we lose the opportunity to to grow in our character and to test our own positions but i think there's a line between ideas which we don't like we might even find distasteful and speech which i I will say hate speech and i i would say that hateful rhetoric uh, hateful speech which gets into the area of um encouraging people to to be to to be criminal uh, for lack of a better description i would say that that kind of talk doesn't uh, isn't Part of philosophy and uh, in my feeling that you no know, philo- philosophical free speech should be encouraged, but that that encouragement doesn't include what i've just described where people are just um to to use a vernacular hating on people uh, and uh, I- encouraging criminality because you just don't like a particular group that's not engaging in philosophical free speech that's just being a dick i <laughs> <Yes.
4: laughs>
2: I mean, it's a, a little bit tricky. I mean, I, I think the, the basic distinction that uh, Matthew makes is is important, and I, I, w- I would guess most people accept some version of that distinction, but of course, the, you know, where to draw the line is where it gets um, yeah. controversial. And I suppose, I mean, just to push back a little bit at that, or to, or maybe to, to make a further distinction, I guess sometimes something like hate, if not the actual... Um, intense emotion then then the behavior which might follow from that um, emotion could be justified right so um uh, you might be targeting a particular group for, for justifiable reasons and the hate might be and I don't want to just hate exactly but it, I mean hate hate as, as, as like a very intense negative evaluation of a person or a group of people could could in principle justify and it, it could call for certain action so from from your you know negative um justified uh, assessment of a person or a group of people you could advocate certain views i mean countries do that all the time when they call for going to war i mean every yeah. military rally or parade, in a way is a kind of active of hate speech by some definition hmm. uh, which is is leading up very clearly to to violent action
3: so where is the um where is the line so this is sort of what I was hoping to get into
0: uh, and
3: maybe we won't spend too long here but where is the line between someone says something so Dale uh, is it uh, do you feel safe with me talking about the test?
1: Oh yeah uh, Paul okay. Paul's well aware of it. He, he's listened to the podcast and that sort of thing so
3: yeah okay. go ahead. All right. So, so the specific issue with Dale, as some of the listeners will know, but, but some won't, is, um, is Dale has answered in the affirmative to something that is properly, uh, popularly known, uh, as the Abraham test. So Dale has, has said that under the right conditions, which is a justified true belief that, uh, that there is a morally perfect God, uh, giving him a command to kill a child, even, even if the child was his own, Dale has said that he would, uh, take the act. Uh, or or take the the command and uh, and act to kill his child under those conditions, right? Under the conditions that mm-hmm. there's a, a a properly basic or justified belief that a morally perfect God is uh, insisting that that act be carried out. Dale, is that a uh, is that an accurate paraphrase of, of your position? Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, yeah, more or less, like a, I would say, a, yeah, if, if on the condition that I have one, a 100% warranted true belief. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to come through a properly based belief, but that's just the only feasible way that I, I can think of that it would come to me. Like it wouldn't come through the means of reading a Bible verse or, or my preacher claims to be a prophet or something like that. Uh, but yeah, as, as long as I have 100% knowledge through whatever means um, that a morally perfect God is telling me to do it, then, yeah, my, my answer is absolutely yes on that front. And as, as Val uh, said in the boards there, it, it's a tautology at that point. It, it shouldn't be sure.
4: controversial, right? But, but yeah.
3: Right. So, but, but this, uh, this kind of statement moves us pretty close to the thing that sort of uh, activates the emotion in people, right? So that's, that's sort of why you've got an internet stalker <laughs> running, running around uh, running around threatening your future. Right. Um, I hold your future in my hands and you've got to stop saying this particular thing. Right. Yes. And so uh, when when have we crossed the line? Uh, so so Paul drew a distinction. here. I think it's a good distinction. Right. There There is a point uh, at which we say this far, no farther. And, and in fact, as as countries and nations and states, um, we're even willing to, yeah. you know, to take military action. Right. But but where is that? Where's that line? It's sort of an interesting line. I don't know if we'll. Find exactly where it is here, um, but I will say that Dale, in your case, I don't think we I don't think we crossed that line, and uh, um, I have said to the person in question. Uh, in fact, uh, this is sort of where our conversation ended. Uh, I said to this person uh, that in your case, uh, where where it would have to be hundred percent certainty, I would I would act to take another person's life under. Circumstances that were much less than a hundred percent certain. Yep. Um, so, say in the case of, of an intruder, right? And and so I I, I don't think that you're uh, you know I don't think you being chased around over this thing is pure, is particularly just. Uh, but it is interesting to ponder the idea of when is it just to you know to go on the uh, to take the affirmative action and try to uh, to stop someone. And I'm just not sure that it's anywhere around, you know, the sort of speech that we're talking about, right? No one's yelling fire in in a public theater, here, yeah. right? So, so Paul, when when do we cross the line? When 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 it when is it okay? Uh, are there a set of rules or guidelines, principles or precepts in philosophy that say, you know, after a certain set of conditions are met? Then it's okay for us to become activists against a person or group.
2: I don't. I don't have a clear sense of, of you know, the principle underlying the distinction here. I, I, if I reflect on my practice, I think I'm like a lot of people spurred to uh, defensive reaction to action, and I, I give a pretty wide uh, berth for speech acts. Um, so, um, but of course, the question here is when are when are we worrying that the speech act is now um, you know causally um, rolling over into some, some action or some predictable
4: action mm. um,
2: i'm not sure but it's it's a, it's, it's a good question I don't have an answer.
3: Fair let, enough. Let's, let me
1: or sorry andrew you guys show but i was just going to ask you you a question andrew if that's if that's okay
3: yeah of course it's
1: um, an open show, man. You've got the mic. Okay. All right. Cool. Thanks. Um, so so what what is wrong with minimally? So I, I like Paul's answer, actually. He gave me something I hadn't considered uh, about the wartime context, and I think he's absolutely right that just making a blanket statement that speech that leads to violence uh, isn't necessarily wrong if it's in a wartime context, but mm-hmm. say just in a normal... What I had in mind was sort of like a normal civil context of like living as a citizen. If you're advocating someone to cause harm to someone that in an immoral way that breaks a law or something like that, like such as trying to tell people, um, you know, Jews are all bad people. You should fraud them or all white people are evil. Therefore you should go and beat them up or something like that. Um, we can, we can at least recognize certain instances, even if we don't have a broad, necessary and sufficient set of conditions to adjudicate every single matter, would you at least admit there are certain instances where where we can say it's clear this should be censored versus this shouldn't? Or yeah,
3: well, that's interesting. So I've I've written a lot about this. As some of the listeners will know, Matthew and I wrote a book that we open sourced, right? Because because we really believe that ideas should be open and uh, and and have equal access. Now, I know we we have to uh, be aware of that, and I'm not. Criticizing capitalism implicitly by saying that ideas should be freely shared or whatever. My personal rule in life, in insofar as it is possible for me to act. Uh, now, I'm, now I'm going to make a sort of philosophical statement. Paul, feel feel free to 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 reengage. But my personal view uh, about life really is: first of all, do no harm. Mm-hmm. That is, um, and, and so maybe that doesn't always come across in, uh, in my conversations, right? But, uh, I, I really, I really try to engage, uh, in, in so much as, uh, as my emotional context will let me, because, you know, I've got plenty of emotions about all kinds of ideas, but in so much as I can, I really try to engage every idea with its greatest possible philosophical charity. And so I honestly don't know in, in terms of freedom of speech where I would curtail someone's right. For me, it almost always involves a call to violence that, that is or, or a violent act of itself right then, then we're past first of all do no harm right? because there are other issues at stake. but I don't have, as far as I'm aware, much of a boundary about freedom of speech. I let people express themselves, Almost, however, they want. Okay, gotcha.
1: Perfect. Yeah, that Thanks. Thanks for answering that. Yeah.
3: Okay. So, Paul, unless you unless you want to tell me where I've gone, philosophically wrong with that because I'm, I'm willing to. I'm no, no. Willing... I... So, Matthew, um, do you want to round that off, or is it time to round it off and and move on to the first actual? Yeah, I don't know.
0: I I don't know what to say about about rounding off. I I think we 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 did that 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 quite well you know that that boundary is clearly a challenge it's more of a, a wide grey area than a, a, than a thin blue line so I'll, I'll i'll just leave it at that because anything else i'll say will will confuse rather than clarify
3: yeah i'm afraid that i'm afraid the the whole topic was a little more confusing than i would
0: have hoped that it was going to be so, so there we are. Well, then, that gives philosophers more to talk about. So let, let's <laughs> embrace that. <laughs> you know. All um, right. Moving on was uh, the, the next section was um, limits of scientific knowledge, oh. and uh, now I'll, I'll I'll wave my flag here. I'm far more of a embracer of scientifically objective, and I I have been guilty in the past of um, probably unfairly disparaging. Philosophical endeavor, especially around trying to find out uh, what's true. I'm very much a, a science worshiper in, in that sort of thing, and have had the label of scientism aimed at me in a uh, not in a complimentary way on multiple occasions. So, anyway, so where do science and philosophy meet, and uh, wh- what's the best way of the two of them meeting in a way that that helps us uh, in in general? And this is often where religion and uh, philosophy of religion probably comes into into play and where it co- butts up against uh, scientific claims and uh, where they clash. So who wants to talk about this more? I think we
1: should let Paul, uh, he's, he's the the main guest, but yeah, let, let Paul, I know he's got a lot of good things to say, so yeah.
0: Oh, I,
2: you know, I, this, this question, I, I don't have a ready answer for it, but um, I, I think it's worth uh, without getting too lost in the, you know, um, I'm going to point out that the, the the word philosophy has a history. And if we're asking about, you know, the the, the line between scientific methodology and philosophical approaches to finding out what's true, I, you know, the question is maybe obscured by our, our, our modern situation where we have a Philosophy department, and then we have a faculty of sciences with, with its various subdivisions, and it gets it gets complicated and and maybe instructively complicated. If you just wind the clock back a few centuries, uh, I mean, you can go back to Newton and, and notice that Newton would have self-identified as a as a natural philosopher, right? Mm. So philosophy, in some broadened sense, uh, hopefully not excessively broadened to the point of meaningless. Uh, is is the love of wisdom. Um, And so anything which is aimed at truth, useful truth, important truth, is philosophical, and by some broadened sense of the scientific method, too, I think. I mean, I don't think there is the scientific method. I um, um, I mean, there is method, right? So what will distinguish science from maybe um, more casual approaches to truth-finding is is the insistence on a clarified, uh, consistently applied, uh, repeatable method. That's maybe the meta meta rule of the science, there should be a method. And uh, so when you start to think at that level of generality for both philosophy and science, they start to blend together a little bit. And, and so the historical fact that they come from the same origins and we're, we're often the same people, if you go back to Aristotle, that's what's he he wasn't a philosopher Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then a natural scientist Thursday and Friday. Exactly, I don't think they were all part of an interconnected search for the truth.
3: So, that uh, so the listeners will probably know the question that I'm going to ask. Um, so, in your view, then one of the one of the things that the sort of scientific method is pinned to—they're almost interchangeable—is is, uh, is this idea of empiricism as a philosopher how do you feel about empiricism? Is it, so? as, uh, as atheists, we, we very often say, you know, in, in empirical methods are our most, uh, most successful methods of, of determining what is true about our world. So that sort of leaves a, you know, what do we mean by true? Right? Because empirical methods definitely tell us something about the world. You know, how, how far can an airplane fly on a tank of fuel? Right? We, um, so there, there are empirical methods of investigation there. But is there something from a philosophical perspective about uh, empirical investigation that goes lacking in your view? Because you talked about phenomenological investigation, you know, when, when, when you were in school and, and, and working through your Ph.D. program. So yeah. what are we leaving out as atheists? Uh, Dale, I'm, I'm setting you up for, for an intro here. So <laughs> what, what are we leaving out if we are with empirical methods that, that philosophy addresses?
2: Oh, these, are, these are great questions, meaning I'm not sure where to begin. Um, you know, you mentioned phenomenology, which um, seems to be one of these useful, almost unavoidable terms, but it's <laughs> hard to uh, give a great definition of the word existential. You know, it's,
4: mm-hmm.
2: we find ourselves using it, but loath to define it. Phenomenology, I mean if, if it is if it is philosophy and maybe that's debatable continuous with with what I would call empiricism I mean empiricism is just tr- training the cognitive faculties at, at what's happening uh, put it sure. and I, I guess in phenomenology there's this um, I mean there's some maybe method- methodological presuppositions uh, about how to Characterize at least at least for methodological reasons that I aiming mean. but it, it's still tra- training the faculties on experience in you know, real time hopefully deriving some some important truths or wisdom you know the, the, the question <laughs> of, of what maybe I could put the question that what can philosophy as it's currently practiced add to the empirical method it, Refined what we today identify as the science.
3: Thank you for reaching inside my head and being able to pull <laughs> that out in a, so, so, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. Um, what does philosophy provide beyond empiricism? There's a way of doing uh,
2: the history of 20th century philosophy, certainly, 20th century academic philosophy as a series of responses to this critical question, a series of crises, even 20th century philosophy being the century of philosophy's humbling, you know, where a lot of philosophers in the English-speaking analytic tradition uh, increasingly saw philosophy's role as uh, just being sort of this assistant to the empirical sciences, helping to clarify terminology at the foundations of the empirical uh, sciences, sort of being this, this, I think the term was, handmaiden to to the sciences. Uh, So that's, we know that's, so philosophy itself has, uh, I mean, one of the answers philosophy itself gives officially to this Pointed question is uh, yeah, in a way, philosophy has some distinct techniques to, to help in the pursuit of knowledge, but they're techniques of maybe clarification.
3: So, so I'll go ahead and go on the record because I, I am one of those empiricists, right? I'm one of those one of those hard naturalists, right? Uh, I guess I'm a practical naturalist in the sense that there may be something outside what we can perceive, but if there is, I don't I don't know how we can get at it, right? So, uh, maybe maybe sort of a practical naturalist in that sense, but but. I don't um I don't think that we would be where we are today without uh philosophy's ability to uh exercise our abstract thoughts and to uh, sort of group and create meta questions around uh whatever we experience right whatever whatever we see so so I wasn't suggesting when I was asking about what philosophy provides beyond empiricism I wasn't implying that I think philosophy is uh somehow not a useful pursuit, because I actually see it exactly the other way around. I actually think philosophy uh, is an incredibly important pursuit, uh, and perhaps we only get to empiricism uh, once philosophy helps us ask a certain kind of question. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that that's the case, but um, certainly we can't answer all the questions that we would like to ask without some ability toward abstract reasoning.
4: And uh, if
1: you if you don't mind me asking um, a question, even as a guest, but but for Paul, I want you to. Okay. Cool. Um. So so Paul, what one of the things that you taught me and taught us in our last course was sort of about the the two different types of limits that science has uh, that you know practical versus in principle limits. Um. Did you maybe want to sort of explain about that at all? That, that might help.
2: Yeah. Um. I mean that, that is a, a useful distinction, I suppose. Um, uh, but I, I think I think the point would apply uh, across all um, forms of seeking I mean some some version of that distinction uh, in practice limitations and in principle limitations right so um, the practical limitations of any knowledge seeking would just be um, limitations due to the capabilities for example of the uh, seeker so um, if you brain (laughs) power, human brain power um, available to the scientists or the philosophers seeking knowledge. Um, There could be uh, uh, maybe less stringent practical limitations, just like um, um, practical interest or um, funding type uh, limitations. So uh, if if we could uh, rouse public interest and uh, focus funding on a particular problem, uh, we could solve that problem, but practically uh, we would never get enough um, funding directed at a particular pet problem. So that, those, those would be examples of practical limitations. These are limits that could be overcome if certain, I guess, empirical um, facts were a little bit different, and we can, we can easily imagine the way those facts would be. The principal limitations are maybe harder to talk about and even to articulate, but th- these would be very deep limitations in the very enterprise of seeking knowledge um, so what you know one one example might be if, if, if you think there are uh, regress problems haunting many, many um, attempts to get at what's true so that for every answer offered to a proposed question a further question can be proposed right that uh, an explanation is always in terms it's a kind of equation where the thing to be explained is cashed out in terms of some second thing and then that logically just by the very nature of that structure of explanation leaves open the possibility of a follow-up question where we can ask well what explains that, that second thing so there there are these regress problems that haunt uh, knowledge enterprises those, those might i mean those are arguable principled limitations on finding out the truth and uh, i mean i think we do find i mean every kid when they first hear about the big bang theory for example i a lot of kids ask an excellent question. Which, what caused the, you know, the singularity? You know, the thing that banged, what caused that thing? Where did that thing come from? And what was there before that? And, and you can, you can, there might be deep reasons to rule that question out in principle. I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, I think often that question is ruled out for practical reasons. We want to focus our research program a little bit on the interesting thing that happened after the bang, which is the universe and what we know as reality. And, uh, uh, are deep, deep practical so deep that they almost bleed into what seems like in principle limitations on our ability to get at what happened before that singularity, how the singularity got there. Um, anyway, the, the 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 kid is aware that in, you know, naturalistically explaining our universe in terms of a long chain of causes and effects that go back to this positive first cause, the, the, the bank, um that that, by its very nature, uh, Leaves logical space for a follow-up question, which is, okay, you, you've cashed it all, it all out in terms of this first event, and that let, leaves open the possibility to ask what, what caused that. So that you know, if there is this kind of regress problem haunting all explanation, that that might be an example of an in principle limitation on knowledge seeking. But again, these regresses haunt not just the sciences, but I think a lot of texts Yeah, and I think that
1: sort of speaks to Andrew's question about scientism sort of thing right that the, there are inherent limits to the to the scientific method and it, this sort of relates to the original like how does philosophy and science relate to each other and on that front there, there's two principal views there's a an internal philosophy of science versus an external philosophy of science um so obviously i i hold the latter like i think andrew and matt would probably be hold the former but um just did you maybe want to sort of explain what that what's that what that is about there paul and where you stand on that front and yeah it's relevant to the to the limits of science
2: yeah so um so by by internal just just to clarify that's the view that um science methodology can be internally justified hopefully without any kind
1: yeah, it justifies itself. And philosophy is really uses to a branch of science. So, you know, yeah, like sci- science justifies itself internally. And whereas external philosophy of science is kind of like philosophy stands over and above science, and it justifies the logical underpinnings of the scientific method. So just to, there's three things. So number one, an external philosophy of science recognizes that claims about reality and knowledge within science already presuppose that there is knowledge in reality in the first place. Two, that scientific assertions that some proposition are true or rational must conform to and not conflict with general features uh, that we already know about logic and rationality. And then three, philosophy is primarily a normative discipline and science is merely a descriptive discipline. I don't know if that helps, but that, that's sort of what I was... Getting at for
2: you to speak on there, wouldn't uh, science have a normative element too, insofar as it's aimed at the truth?
3: That seems right to me, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that uh, Dale, if you will reread number one, I, I think I, I think there's something wrong with sort of the way that works. So
1: so science works on already presupposing that there is knowledge and reality in the first place. So that
3: yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not so sure that that would have to be the case. Um, we might teach it that way. Um, but if, if I, um, if I didn't know anything about the scientific method and, and I don't necessarily have to be uh, presupposing, uh, that, that knowledge can be had, but, uh, if, if through observation, uh, I discover, um, uh, that water runs downhill, uh, as for instance, um, I don't think I necessarily have to presuppose that the, that the scientific method um, depends on some knowledge value. I, I think my observations are are okay to to bootstrap the idea of knowledge without presupposing the idea of knowledge.
1: Okay. Okay. And and in terms of like Paul as as the guest, you do you agree with that, or do do you see any do you see logic as sort of undergirding the scientific method, sort of justifying? the scientific method works, or yeah, do you, what do you make of that?
3: Yeah, I'm interested, Paul. Tell me, tell yeah. me where yeah. I went philosophically awry. No, I don't know about
2: that. Uh, my, my first reaction is to say doesn't it doesn't logic undergird everything? It's it's sort of um, in in logic we're articulating. Mm. I guess ideally we're articulating the um, necessary structure of anything that is, um, and so that would in in, in some sense undergird everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but but it still might be that uh, um, philosophy, as currently named, logic has been part of the philosopher's sort of specialty. You know, that there might be partly historic, historically contingent reasons for that. I remember. I mean, I think the first course I ever taught was Intro to Symbolic Logic back in two thousand and three or four, and I remember there were quite a few comp sci students taking it, and for them it was all. Um, it was just a rehashing of stuff they had learned in the first year with a slightly different, maybe, set of symbols. And I was
3: one of those geeky comp sci uh, students. <laughs> Irving M. Copey's um, Symbolic Logic. Go, oh, that's, that's one, yeah. And um, it's, a, it's a classic. And uh, so, I, you know, philosophy's
2: claim to logic as one of its um, sub disciplines or arch disciplines, I guess, is um, at least questionable to me. I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, again, Philosophers do typically have some training in that, but, but you know, a lot of people get PhDs in philosophy without ever taking symbolic logic or even informal logic. Um,
3: it's, I was wondering if that was a thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, so. some, some programs
2: make it a, um, you know, requirement. PhD programs will require that the student has taken the equivalent of maybe an undergraduate course in symbolic logic hmm. or, or demonstrated competence in it. Anyway, I'll, I'll just stop, stop there. I, I hope I'm not just um, <laughs> making my my vocation uh, useless the more I talk here, but uh, uh, I, I don't think so. In committed I've... To philosophy's uh, special contribution, but but it is I, I admit it is hard to articulate it. Response. To the point of it. I think it is it is interesting. Philosophy is maybe a discipline more than any um, that has self self questioning at its very heart. Right. So. Um, you know the view that maybe philosophy is is just an assistant to science. At best, that, that's that's um, a common philosophical view, as I mentioned. So, self so,
3: no question about philosophy's value is
2: central to the very uh, very
3: Okay, if I could go back and not ask that question, I would go back and and not <laughs> ask that question because I I don't want to diminish the value of the conversation, or even to be perceived as diminishing the value of the conversation, because. Uh, and, and maybe it's just that um, Pulaski is sort of a pet of mine. So, <laughs> uh, and and I really want to have uh, maybe maybe even if we have to have it off mic, I really want to ask uh, about uh, Platonic forms at some point. I don't think we have I don't think we have room for in this conversation. But um, you you talked about symbolic logic, and you know you don't you don't get out of sort of chapter two of the textbook before you uh, before you come across. Um, um, you know, identity, non-contradiction and the excluded middle, right? The the are three sort of basic laws of, of logic, right? We get these pretty early on. And and so I guess my question to you, because because you've thought about these things and and perhaps in in deeper and and more expansive ways than I have, um, because I only use them as means to an end. Um can we get those laws through observation? Or are those laws, um, somehow, uh, imprinted, right? Is, is that sort of the written into the fabric of the universe? Or do we just get these things observationally? You, you see what I mean? What this sort of appeals to the question about about the basis of science is science internally consistent or is the, is the, are those laws intrinsic or extrinsic did, did
2: anyone
1: else want to um, that's so that's yeah, for, <laughs> for my for my take I, I me and Paul actually discussed this in the in the class that we co- teached a little bit it was oh, an, really? it, it was in the context of uh, numbers oh, um, right. abstract so that yeah. kind of links it to the platonic forms I guess um, but, but yeah I view and I could be wrong. I, my understanding of Paul is that we view it sort of ex, they're extrinsically. We don't derive it just scientifically, like in a scientific, using the scientific method or that sort of thing. They're you know just descriptive facts about the the universe. I, I think that they're they are extrinsic. So I would say that they're necessary truths. They cannot be false. Um, they obtain and. They're true in every single logically possible world. You can't violate the law of non-contradiction. One plus one will always equal two in, in every world. So, so yeah. I, as far as I understand, what your question is, they're they're extrinsic and impose themselves on the world. It's sort of like a top-down as opposed to bottom-up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I want to see if I'm right. If if uh, I think Paul answer
2: the same way, but let's let's see. Let's not let's not assume. Yeah, my, my intuitions go go the same way as Dale's. Though um, well, I think Dale and I disagreed about whether you know they needed to be ultimately couched in the mind of a of a capital knower, which which Dale would be. I think I agree with Dale that uh, these are necessary, universal, true in all possible worlds truths. These these logical truths that uh, Andrew articulated. But uh, I think I think I differ from Dale in, in, in the theological requirements uh, I don't think um, that there needs to yeah I think I think there though it's, it's very hard to think down exactly what I would mean by this I, I think they're almost extra mental that, um, uh, you know the, you know the, the fact that 2 plus three equals five is true not just independent of Apples conglomerating in the natural history of the world but it's it's true independent of there being any knowers any mathematicians in the history of reality so that if reality had just been a void from beginning to end um, and ever and ever it still would be true that two plus three equals five I think I think Dale would differ on that
1: Yeah, so, so yeah, so I'm a divine conceptualist. And, um, yeah, me and Paul were, it was, it was a good combo in front of the class. We kind of, I gave some objections to why abstract entities can't just exist in their own right. A couple of reasons. One is just based on the inherent nature of abstract entities that it, they are mind dependent objects. Like the number two can't exist independent of a mind. Um, but, one reason, that, if you don't mind me just sort of asking, because I never got to ask it in class, but it, it's the third one where, um, look, abstract entities don't stand in causal relations to anything. Like that, the number two has never caused anything to happen, whereas concrete objects or, or mental objects they do stand in causal relations. Um, do you think Do you think that has any bearing on on saying that? abstract things like the laws of logic or uh numbers or that sort of thing um are mind dependent at all or you're still you still think they can exist independently
2: so could you just clarify for me the relation between causation and and the mind dependence thesis?
1: yeah so so in in the world right the um like the number t- numbers or or um you know, propositions or something like that, they, they don't stand in causal relations. They, they don't... The number two has never caused anything to happen, like my pen to move or something like that. Um, but concrete objects do stand in, in causal relations, right? They both physically and as a substance dualist, uh, I think spiritual substances also stand in causal relations. So the, there's this difference that we observe in the world. So therefore applying that reasoning we can sort of say well even in this platonic realm above and beyond the universe abstract entities appear to be mind-dependent and therefore it, it's more probable that my notion of divine conceptualism is true that there, there aren't any abstract objects that are only mental and physical
2: they appear to be mind-dependent because um, they don't have causal implication.
1: Yeah, there's like a di- there's an a, a, there's a difference there. It's like your differences, the differences argument. Or... Wow,
2: I'm just I'm just having a hard time s- s- seeing why that would be so. I, I'm sure it's just um, a gap in my thinking right now.
4: Gotcha. Okay. I,
2: why? Like, let me just state the position more positively, again, and maybe you can come back at me. I mean, I I think these. Uh, Call them conceptual objects, like like numbers, have not not causal implications. They have conceptual in- implications, right? So um, it's the implication of two an and 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 of three that five five is their equivalent. And I'm just I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing why that that not only couldn't be true, um, independent of any natural phenomena, causal phenomena. But it, it, it almost seems to me stronger than that, that, that we're, mi- we're mischaracterizing the nature of conceptual objects if we, if we insist that they've got some kind of dependence on acts, like mental acts. I assume when you're talking about a mind, you're talking about something that um, mentates, right? And I don't think the truths themselves are dependent on the thought. That's, the thinking is what affirms the truth for the thinker, Thinking or the proving is what uh, draws out the implication, but the the implications are are truly, I mean, truly mind dependent. I'm not sure if that at all addressed your objection. I'm just maybe uh, calling again for a clarification of the objection. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, yeah, no, I I just wanted to get your sincere sort of opinion there. I'm not trying to to challenge it, but yeah, it's 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 sort of it's arguing based on what we know of the objects based on our everyday experience the, the number two has the feature uh, in this universe of not standing in causal relations so it, it seems like you're saying yeah but it's different uh, like in the in the context of moral um, abstract moral principles right you're saying that there's like a, it stands in causal relations the the moral facts impose themselves, on us in the universe and guide our actions and that sort of thing but if moral principles are abstract objects and we know from our experience that abstract objects don't stand in causal relations it's more likely that it's based in something else such as the mind of god because and then the god and then god can impose those moral facts on us
2: or something but
1: i don't know if that makes sense that's
2: interesting i i admit i haven't thought I don't think I've thought as deeply about this issue as you have, Dale. I just um, I'm just responding a little bit on the fly to your uh, very interesting uh, pushback. Uh, I guess uh, you know my first response, as as you were just talking it, I popped into my mind, (laughs) and that's that's all it is. So take it for what it is. Is is question? I I just I just wonder if in the moral case, like the ought, Hmm. uh, the ought proposition, if it really does have any kind of um, causal has strict moral proposition. There's, there's no doubt that once it sort of incarnates um, through socialization, for example, it has causal effects. But if we can you know, strip it to its pure ought um, affirmation, I'm not sure if that in itself, which I would take to be the core of the, the, the moral truth, if that itself is necessary, <laughs> necessary causal effects on action. Um, I would I'd rather say, and this is takes us into a bit of circularity, I guess, that that it ought to it ought to affect us causally. <laughs> that 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 if we're being moral, or if um, we've arranged our socializing processes wisely, then the true ought statements, which again I would say I, I tend to think exist sort or of independently of any mind, um, they uh, they they will be um, affecting, guiding our behavior. That that itself is a, is an ideal. Gotcha.
4: Perfect. Yeah. Okay.
2: yeah thank, I
3: wonder. Yeah, I wonder if it if it doesn't happen quite the other way around though. So so just pulling us back to the idea of notion. So I wonder if it doesn't. Uh, we we were talking about the idea of of sort of the origin of of abstract objects. So uh, the number two, for instance, without some sort of unit like two apples or two oranges or. Four. Two stones, or whatever, but I, I'm not sure that abstraction doesn't happen after concrete observation. So, Paul, you you said you know two apples and three apples are the equivalent of five apples, and you know? so so that's that's uh, that seems right to me. But but it seems to me that there's not much of a step from observing two apples and three apples being five apples and. Uh, you know, four apples and six, uh, four oranges and six oranges being ten oranges and that sort of thing. It doesn't seem like much of a mental step to me. And, and perhaps I'm not, I may not be giving it its due in terms of consideration, but it, it doesn't seem to me to be, it doesn't seem to be, to be much of a step to abstract the, the number from the unit and just observe that this abstract idea has broader has broader application
2: yeah but is, is that maybe just a question of the historical order in which the concepts arise so it might just be yeah, a, yeah. a you know natural fact about animal learners like us sure. that we um, first observe the apples and then we abstract from those cases to reflect the general principles and um, you know, if, lo- if logic constrains nature, then there's a kind of inference to the logic that can occur from um, observation of nature. Uh, we'll mm. ser- we'll mm. certainly never, never correctly observe violations of logic uh, when we observe nature, if I can put that view. Um, and we maybe even can uh, do a kind of induction, a kind of induction to the logical rule from, from the natural observation. But I'm not sure if that um, answers the question of which is prior ontologically.
3: I'm not sure either. Uh, It was, um, it was just sort of, uh, trying to turn the glass around, right? Um, because I don't know that, um, I mean, we're sort of at bare metal here, and I'm not sure that I can answer for myself, sort of, sort of which came first here. Um, but I don't see in principle, uh, a reason that abstraction cannot come through observation. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, like I said, I may not have given this, uh, it, you know, just consideration. I'm willing to acknowledge that. But um, it's the necessity
2: you know. of it that, that would be tricky to get from observation. The observation, it seems, would get you at best a very reliable induction, maybe analogous to inductive claims about the properties of
4: particular. Mm-hmm. Similar mm-hmm. Properties.
2: I've observed a violation of that uh, that stipulation about properties of carbon atoms, and I, I you just have to ask if you'd be willing to make that kind of it's a kind of weakening of, of logical claims from from necessity into uh, highly um,
3: probable. So <laughs> this this will this will make all sorts of people uncomfortable. I actually don't have a problem with that. I, I don't I don't have a problem. Uh, sort of emotionally, maybe that's the wrong way to phrase this, but there, there is sort of an emotional context to uncertainty. And, and I'll just say that I don't have, there, there's no, um, there's no, you know, there's no tickle inside my head if I, um, reduce these things to non necessity in, in the sense that in some possible world somewhere they might be violated. Um, and and I, I don't even know um, that, that I would have a problem if we observed a violation in this world, uh, only because I, I suspect uh, that whatever violation there was would probably be a regular uh, observable violation. And that's just that's just mental bias on, on my part. That's all that is. I don't have a problem with it. Acknowledging that, but but I don't know what it means to claim necessity uh, here for myself. I I understand the idea of necessity, why why it's uh, why it's important, but I don't know that we've gotten to the heart of these things actually. uh, Of uh, you know of of the of the law of addition, Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've gotten to a point. Where I'm convinced that we've made a successful argument that it is a necessity.
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, I you know, I'm I'm willing to uh, be pretty epistemologically humble about these, uh, you know, close to the metal issues too. I mean, uh, it, it, I'm, I'm always deferring to the to the thought, oh, anything is possible. I, you know, I know so little, anything. Uh, but you know, when we get to these laws of logic, it does seem like you can just. Through the pure operation of you know, the mind, see the contradiction inherent in the opposing view. Like when we try to oppose any of the three rules, right? But, you know, there's a, apparently a well, lot. I, I and I don't know much about it, but there's you know a lot of recent work I think in these non-traditional logics, which deny you know, one or more of those. those so um, um, it, it's it's for, for these these uh, you know logicians it's more than just uh, maybe <laughs> it's uh, they've tried to work out uh, sort of coherent systems I guess which which is sure. other 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 um, rules um, so yeah um, I, I just I, I, I wonder what the observational contradiction would actually be I guess I guess if, if it's true that logic truly does um, constrain nature then I'm just wondering if it would even be possible to or a contradiction.
3: Uh, well, and and that might be right. That you know, that may be the best argument for necessity. I mean, you're you're, you're right down um, where I think you know. There's, there's the best. There's the best defense that that these laws are of necessity, right? Um, because we can't even imagine what a contradiction would look like, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. So, so
2: again, I, I mean, uh, you know, whether that's just a limitation of our own cognitive. Machinery is, is, but it sure seems from the inside of this machinery that it's some absolute limitation. That this is a, 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 a um, you know happy case where the limits of our machinery meet <laughs> the the absolute truth.
3: Right, because uh, a, a violation of the law of, of, of this of the law of addition, just as a, for instance, would also have a further further violation. Right, because uh, a violation of the law of addition would also violate the law of uh, identity. Right. Because if you could violate um, one apple and one apple being two apples, you might end up in a in a case where uh, neither of the apples also had distinct identity. Right. Or, or maybe they had some sort of plural identity. I have no idea what it would mean to be able to uh, violate that idea in, in some sensible way, because it seems like anything that you could do that would break. One of those fundamental laws would also, uh, dare I say, by necessity, <laughs> break other ones of those laws.
2: Yeah, they're they're um, un- unstable logics, right? Um, I guess you, you know, in in classic symbolic derivation from a contradiction, anything, anything follows. So, um, but maybe maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a you know anything follows. Sounds uh, you could call that ontological richness or something, and some be some some ultimate version of a multiverse, and then we happen to be in one, which is strange. But
4: um, yeah, maybe well,
2: the, sure. the heart of reality is some kind of. The, the, uh, I mean, we, we notice that engines uh, operate on some kind of gradient; they exploit some kind of natural gradient, kind of difference. And of course, the, a logical engine would be the generator. If uh, you know the gradient between uh, contradictory. States would be the ultimate, hmm. uh, and uh, so you know everything's possible. I'm, I'm very I, I like the idea. I don't, you know uh, that maybe at the heart of reality is some kind of contradiction. That's what generates um, the plurality of reality that we experience. But from again from the inside of our own cognitive machinery, it feels like.
3: <laughs> it's
1: uh, sure, I, I have one. Um, sorry to, to interrupt, Andrew. Were, were you finished? Or oh,
3: I was. I, I... I, I am wondering
0: about Matthew, though. I think we put him to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting back, in, enjoying this I, I have a question I want to ask, but you—it it rewinds about ten or even fifteen minutes. But um, you go ahead to ask yours first, uh, Dale, and, and then we'll see.
4: Yeah,
1: I think so. I think we've covered everything. There, there is one last question that uh, we haven't touched on uh, oh. in, the sci- in the science section, and that's uh, relevant to faith. Uh, faith in a scientific context, um, you know. Do, so I was just going to ask Paul: like, do, do you? And everyone can chime in. Do, do you think it's proper to employ faith in a scientific context at all?
3: Um,
2: by by definition of that term, I think it's unavoidable in any action. Um, all action pre, uh, presupposes. Prior presumptions. Uh, any investigation has to begin from, from something.
4: Um, and
2: uh, by, by faith, we mean something, you know, and I'll let you, you define it, in and in 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 I'm curious for your sort of working definition of faith here. But, but if, if faith is defined a little bit broadly to mean uh, some kind of confidence in a belief that isn't necessarily directly warranted um it seems it's practically unavoidable to, any, um, effort to get the truth uh so science will have its versions of that I, I agree
4: cool all right
1: yeah um and yeah on my end i i agree as well I, I take you know faith primarily is is trust or this you have this confidence type type thing so yeah i i, I see it as fully proper to employ that in a scientific context and consistently in any other context as well.
4: explain
1: when we get to the next section. So yeah, I largely agree with what Paul said, um, Andrew and and Matt, if you guys maybe want to give your take on that or.
0: Well, that fits in well with the, the question I wanted to ask because, um, my engagement with philosophy tends to be mostly with, with, uh, Theologians using, uh, philosophical processes to justify, uh, the statement that there is a God. So that, that, that works, works with faith. Um, and it was, yeah, 10 or 15 minutes ago, Paul, you made a, a comment around, uh, philosophy by its, its very nature is, uh, self-doubting or questions itself. Uh, I can't remember the exact phrase that you used, but you put in there that, the you know, the, the process of thinking philosophically is, is to be questioning. I, I would, uh, I wholly endorse that. And uh, that's the, the basis of the, the scientific method. You know, if you, you, you see something, don't assume that that is what, what you have seen is quotes the truth. You know, you must question that. You must doubt it. You must test it in every way possible. Uh, because uh, every test exposes yourself to slightly closer to the truth. When I engage with, um, Theologians, well, theologians, probably not the right word. Um, um, but you know, people promoting specifically Christianity, uh, or either on Facebook or, or Twitter, they're using philosophical arguments to state absolutely categorically, without a shadow of a doubt, there is a God and that God is the God that they, that they believe in. And, um, is, is that a fair use of, of philosophy or is that a separate branch of philosophy? And, and how does what, what they do differ from the statement that you said about philosophy being a, a questioning process? Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's a great, great, great question. I, it's clearly a leading question from my perspective. I, <laughs> I, I, I accept that.
3: Um, I, uh, I can feel Dell's temperature going up. I... <laughs>
1: It's, it's, a, it's a
4: summer August
0: afternoon. I, I'm good, man. I'm happy. <laughs> I've been in Canada in August. It's jolly hot there, I can tell you. Yeah. I think when I, when I was talking about philosophy's capacity for
2: self-doubt, I was thinking specifically of this uh, weird fact about philosophy that it's – I think if you asked 100 working philosophers to define philosophy – um, especially if you asked a hundred good ones, you'd get a hundred maybe distinct answers to the question, and I don't mm. think that's the case for uh, you know working biologists. Uh, so the field itself is is uh, not well defined, and so that's one of the facts, almost well defined facts of the field that it's this particular open play box, playroom, uh, the field itself, like what 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 is the nature of this room where the walls is is uh, clearly delineated at the beginning of the game um, but I you know it's it's I leave open whether uh, in that room we can find certainty about particular questions so it could be you know the ontological argument is sound like uh, you know Bertrand Russell talked about falling <laughs> off his bicycle at least for a, for a moment being an a, uh, being a theist a theist um, uh, realizing in a, in a flash that Anselm's argument worked I don't think that thought stayed with him for his life but um, but maybe he was right in that flash that that Anselm's argument is is uh, a, a perfect proof of the existence of a perfect being, and uh, so so I, I leave open the possibility that philosophy, including philosophical theology, could arrive at results, uh, maybe even very special results, with which have a kind of justified certainty um, attached to them. All right,
4: thank you. Uh, yeah, how do you think you guys?
1: we should move on to the to the final section on religious knowledge because i know that this is what Paul was really excited about this was the favorite your favorite um your favorite section so
3: then we should have moved on an hour and a half ago actually that's good actually
1: but yeah (laughs) Um, yeah uh so paul um i don't know why i've turned into the host um but yeah did you want to maybe to
0: let you do it dale you'll we'll we'll convert you sooner or later (laughs) i'm just i'm
1: I'm so used to being the post on skepticism yeah um yeah maybe paul just turn it over to you first of all just to give sort of a general introduction to this section and and say whatever whatever you want on the issue of religious knowledge and and how faith relates to religion and that sort of thing
2: oh yeah yeah these, these these uh excellent questions which are so you know fundamental and therefore unavoidably um in general, I often find uh, almost the mood I'm in that day. <laughs> I come up, I have, have different answers to them, or different different uh, approaches to them. And maybe I'm a, a little bit in a I don't want to say scientific mood today, but but by that broadened sense of the scientific method that uh, we talked about at the beginning today, I'd be willing to uh, maybe not not draw a very hard line between religious knowledge and scientific knowledge. Just like I, I was only trying to raise your philosophic scientific knowledge. I suppose, so far as uh, religion makes claims about reality, uh, we can call for justification of those claims, and um, any plausible system of justification would, would fit in my broader notion of a scientific method. So, you know, if there is a creator of our universe, personal creator, some kind of personal existence which uh, continues on after bodily death, if God uh, we need these typically religious questions. I think these are these are questions we should demand to be investigated. And uh, so, in that in that sense, approach approach scientifically. I uh, you know I mentioned that I I was interested in sort of the epistemology of mystical experience. Well, mysticism, of course, is a kind of empirical approach to the divine. It's a little bit different from Anselm's argument, which is an a priori attempt to prove the existence of God. Whereas the mystical approach, and you know, want to just call it the experiential approach. That's that's the attempt to counter those realities. And then from that data, if I, if I may, you know, um, derive, derive justified conclusions about what it is you experience. So I tend to, for reasons I should think about, favor the latter route. You know, even if you ran through the ontological argument and you realized it was sound, I, I could imagine for a lot of people that wouldn't necessarily make, they see the um, necessity of the conclusion given those premises and the conclusion that there is a perfect being make too much of a difference to their life, whereas the experiential route would. So that there's that pragmatic thought in my mind that there should be a demand for an experiential encounter with these these realities. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the, I think it all kind of dissolves into a, a quest for truth and I don't I don't see a good reason to at the beginning kind of draw a hard line between these different Gotcha.
3: So of, Dale, yeah. what do you think there?
1: Yeah, so I, I am more of the analytic uh, philosopher type so yeah I'm not, I'm not as much into the the mystical side and that sort of thing but um i, I recognize that this could be sort of my deficiency it, it, there's room for it to be a both and approach perhaps uh experiential types of coming to knowledge of the divine in, in general is equally valid as as using propositions premise objection and and that sort of thing and um that was one of the things that i appreciated in Paul's class that we just finished last week um the, the last class at least um he's still marking me so be kind Paul um
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh so we're your end of term project is that what this is <laughs> um, I've
3: Been a lot of people's projects over time that's okay <laughs> <laughs> sorry um but
1: yeah he, he sort of ended so so a lot of the class was focused on analytic philosophy and you know, all the the going over morality and free will and that sort of stuff. But he, he ended the class with Nietzsche, um, who I mm. I was sort of a fan with, uh, a fan of. But yeah, Paul, the way Paul taught it sort of kind of tweaked a little bit to be may, maybe there's something here that um, I should be paying more attention to. And rather than me explaining that, uh, you know, Paul Paul can sort of go in, explain that because I thought the way you explained why you were using Nietzsche in a different philosophical tradition. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, did, did you want to sort of explain to the audience that? Or?
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, um, yeah. I, li- I like that distinction too, which um, is uh, Nietzsche's is a, a person. You know, He's a robust personality, and um, you, you get that if you read Nietzsche directly. You're getting kind of a, an intellectual journal, and getting a portrait of a life, and a mind struggling, and that's very different from, you know, the ideal of analytic philosophy, where uh, it, it reduces a little bit to premises and conclusions and objections and responses. And I think that's somewhat true. I think I think a good encyclopedia of analytic philosophy is is, is really worth reading and can in many cases be an improvement <laughs> on the original articles the arguments appeared in. There's a, there's a clarification, a reduction to to the core ideas, and uh, that doesn't work so well for some. Figures and movements of philosophy, and Nietzsche would be almost a
4: prime example of that.
2: Where uh, you know um, people will meet you down to arguments and positions. I mean, they're, they're often fascinating, but there's something there going on in the impression of a personality working in real time on the page that is has has been handed down to us. That's important to encounter too. And and the theological connection is is that of course if if God is a person, capital P person, that implies some kind of personality, and if humans uh, or uh, created life are made in God's image, then there's a kind of inferential process there possible. If you, you you know, sort of the holographic principle that if you really pay attention to the part, you can infer something about the whole, and if you really pay attention to a particular articulate person, you might be able to make interesting inferences about the super person. I'm not saying is the Incarnation of no. God. I'm saying anyone who's articulated their person um, on the page for us, Persona- y- you know, given us their personality, that's, that's a datum. You know, that's a super datum that we need to pay attention to. Um, we, can't, we can't take the personality out of the philosophy totally, especially if you've got this background theological hypothesis that reality itself at its core or at its origins might be a capital P person. Andrew or, or
4: Matt?
3: I think, okay, so, um, my, um, my failure of imagination here, um, the listeners know I'm a comp sci guy. Um, I spend a lot of my time, um, uh, dealing with hard values and, and hard data and that sort of thing. And so the whole time we're going through this, I'm, I'm just wondering about, Experimental verification. So this this is perhaps the the wrong way to aim the conversation. And if so, I'm hoping Matthew <laughs> will rescue us all. Um, but so You're in trouble then. <laughs> <laughs> so w- when we talk about the idea that God is a personality, I, I don't know the problem with that as an idea. I was I was a Christian for a long time. I was happy to try to to uncover whatever truth could be uncovered there. In the end, it all seemed a little too. A little too amorphous. So we're talking about um, we were talking about logic earlier. Um, I've said this over and over, so listeners should be familiar. Uh, you know, any argument that we make, well, if we're talking about deductive arguments, so to, to be fair, you know, I, I couldn't I couldn't make an argument for God um, that was both well formed and one where I could demonstrate that the conclusion was true. Right. So I'm. I, I I, I don't think that, um, that the Kalam does a particularly good job, but let's just pretend that we're philosophically charitable to the Kalam as we can possibly be. Whatever the conclusion to the Kalam is, I wasn't able to sort of run out and prove it in the traditional way, right? So if I, if I said that, um, uh, if I said that, um, all mammals had, uh, you know, um, if I, if I made the traditional mammal argument about my dog, right uh, then i couldn't do the same thing with some god right and so i was never able to get to a point where um where i felt good about a hard conclusion that there was uh, some being in the sky uh, or sorry that's probably a little dismissive but there's some being out there winding the gears of the universe toward a particular conclusion i, ne- I never could get there and, and so it, it maybe we're pointing the conversation in the wrong direction, but but if so, that that was my thought while while you guys were talking. Yeah, I guess
2: if you're coming from from Dale's more analytic perspective, then um, then all, all you would have is is these uh, the arguments. Um, though some of them might have uh, experiential input, like even the argument <laughs> has some minimal. Input from I don't know if it's observation, but you know noticing cause and effect or noticing motion like in Aquinas' ways, and then making references from that. But um, but I, I guess the, the, the other the other route, the, the experiential route, is to seek an encounter with something um, in reality. But that can proceed according to certain rational insights, right? Like so. So here, here here's an example. If there is a superperson in reality, um, it it would hear me if I just spoke out to it right now. And if it's moral, and I was with the right kind of urgency requesting that it responds to me, maybe even in real time, um, I should expect some kind of sign of a response to me. Uh, so that's a kind of working hypothesis of prayer um, right. in, in that, in that uh, realm. And, you, you know, know I, I think that that route is, is important to keep in mind. I mean, uh, even if we personally fail to get uh, you know, convincing data from that kind of experiment, we do have this interesting record you know, across humanity of contact with something outside what we would say called the natural realm.
4: So that's, that's, that counts for
2: something. I mean, there, there, are, there are naturalistic explanations of religious experience that might be able to counterweight all that evidence or explain it away, but it's, it's got some initial weight. I guess maybe what I'm getting at is when you're seeking the experiential route, there should, there should still be rational constraints on it, and you should place some demands on what to expect. So something analogous to a, a Turing test for, for dialogue with the divine being, right? Just like um, you know, if you're going to judge the convo bot, be conscious, or at least a person. It's got a past certain level of conversational ability. Uh, we should expect that from the real-time, you know, given response of prayer and signs. No, it, it, it might be um, that the majority of individual dialogues or attempted dialogues with the ultimate reality um, do not pass, or even come close to passing that Turing test, and that people who, you know, infer that the test has been passed, who infer, for example, they've received response to prayers, they're just holding their conversation partner, their divine conversation partner, to very low standard evidence. They're not taking into account things like, you know, I mean, very selection effects and biases, her idolias. But, but, you know, ideally, or in principle, if you could have a, a seeker uh, who's seeking dialogue with this person and is, is, is well-correcting for a lot of these expected biases and then re- receives in real time um, a kind of response from this person that passes some kind of super capital P three test, right? Where where there's not just evidence that this thing is intelligent, but it's like, wow, it's got the greatest sense of humor um, <laughs> that I've ever encountered in world literature, or it's um, wow, it's the form of its of its communication is superhuman, meaning it's it's um, um, using features of my natural and social environment. As a chalkboard, so that implies control over that natural and social environment, which would certainly be superhuman. Anyway, uh, that's it's interesting, right? So this experiential route, um, I, I think we should pursue it with rational demands. And I think that the hard fact for Pius will be that I, most of us really do fail the test, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that some individuals in history have a capacity. And so, you know, when I think of Jesus of Nazareth or about Brunonic or about some of these figures that I admire from religious history, I, I tend to think of them as people who've been passing this test, right? At, at least they've been receiving what we would identify as more for the belief to generate from these encounters, from these dialogic encounters. It, it still might be that objectively their, their belief is false, but they've, they've done a pretty good job attempting to correct for these biases. Now, the, the trick with the experiential route is it never gets you. I, I don't think, I can't see how this kind of, you know, even the ideal, during passing conversation with a divine dialogue partner could tell you that this is the ultimate being, right? You need Anselm's ontological argument to establish the existence of an ultimate being. No matter how impressive your dialogue partner is, there's nothing they can say or even do that would show they are the ultimate uh, reality. Uh, so maybe you need to, <laughs> it's like uh, channeling, right, from, from both sides. Uh, you channel from the priori side, the Anselm side, establish ideally Falling off your bicycle, like Russell, you establish the ex- the objective existence of the perfect being, and experientially, from the other side of the channel, digging, you uh, you start talking to this being, and you start to wonder if maybe those are the same being. You're talking to the being that Anselm was was uh, referring to in his conclusion.
1: If you don't mind me sort of chiming in, I, I totally agree with what uh, Paul was saying. I I think that there is this both-and approach, um, and one thing that came up. Uh, in in our classes is, um, so Paul was teaching us about uh, Augustine's conversion story Um, and it was in the context of well this is an intellectual sort of objective argument, it's a design argument uh, showing special providence of God and you know he he reasons this happens and the likelihood of that therefore God exists type thing and then to that you have sort of the, the counter explanations but one thing that uh, I, think, I think I sent it to you in an email, Paul, but I, I said, well, what, if, what if he's not actually reasoning or making a design argument? Um, he could also be having this experiential route, with, which is what I call the properly basic belief that God exists. It, it's not so much a set of premises to a conclusion. Therefore, a, a designer God providentially arranged for this for, to happen. It's more just a direct, wow, God exists in light of this experience. So it, I just want to stress that there, there could be this both. And um, there could be an intellectual argument to this experience, a, a design type argument or something, if you, if you can prove that. But in addition to that, you could also have a direct experiential route that gives you knowledge. God work, God exists via properly basic belief. So it, it could be both. And you could have double warrant uh, potentially. I don't know what you guys make of that or, what you guys want to say to that?
3: I'd like to ask a question, Paul. I don't, if you, if you've got something to say, I'll wait. No, um, go ahead. Okay. So here's, here's why I walked out on this, bill because I, I, I do get where you're coming from, but it very much seems to me, let's, let's say that I, I get this, um, this idea in my head that there's a you know, there's a there's this there's God out there and he's talking to me from beyond space time or, you know, however how you gloss that I'm, I'm trying to attach some specific position to the idea. But let, let's just say that's what you believe. There's a there's a God that's outside space and time, you know, and he holds a future, in whatever. So yeah, I might get this this idea that there's a God, but it doesn't address um, for me. All of the central claims of Christianity that don't get addressed. So it's a God that can live forever. It's a God with personal, uh, with perfect judgment. Uh, it's a it's a God that does or does does not maintain uh, an eternal torment chamber for people that that don't love Him, depending on whether you're you know eternal conscious torment or an annihilationist. Right. Um, there there are all sorts of things that don't get answered just by saying I have this properly basic belief, and and so. Just saying that I got this communication from from somewhere, even if you did, even, even giving it its best gloss, um, I still don't have the questions answered that matter. Which are the central claims of Christianity about the ability to live forever, God keeping a tally list of sins if he does, all of those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, I, I would just say, so in the first place you could though, right? It, it depends what you're having... properly basic belief about and you could have multiple properly basic beliefs i i do um but yeah that's why i was stressing there's a both and right not not all of my beliefs that i believe as as a christian come through a properly basic belief method there's also reasoning and the use of divine scripture so you know that's sort of my notion of sufficient attachment right sure uh, I, I don't have a properly basic belief whether God is a Calvinist God or, or a Molinistic God as I, I like to, as I believe. Um, I, I use sort of reasoning from the scriptures and, and, you know, basic logic to to sort of arrive that that is the case. Um, but I, I do have elements of that, of that arguing, which are properly basic, such as libertarian free will. I just know I have libertarian free will that's a properly basic belief and that's one element that could go into an argument that i could use and eventually arguing no calvinism is false and actually molinism is true or some form of armenianism or something like that
4: sure.
1: so yeah properly basically beliefs don't have to bear it doesn't matter either method doesn't have to bear all the weight it could be a combination and of different means to gaining knowledge and yeah that that's cool. true my case so
4: yeah
3: I would, you know but oh paul i'm sorry i think you were going to say something let me just let me pause no i, I think uh, i think um andrew you and i have a lot in common
2: in the way we would we would approach these sorts of you know dialogic encounters uh, that I, I would be very careful about what i theologically infer from from one encounter, or even a series of them, just like when you're getting to know a person, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a relationship there, and there's a maybe a series of dialogues and interactions, and and you can start to infer more and more about the nature of this person, its values. Um, but you're always open in some skeptical part of your brain, maybe to the fact that to the possibility that that you've been fooled, or you're misunderstanding or the person you thought you loved for thirty years, and you thought loved you, and has betrayed you and presenting a very effective front uh, dialogically. These are,
3: but but that, that can
2: become a kind of virtue even of the, the seeker, right? That, that may be actually what characterizes the seeker and what characterizes the kind of personality that's most likely to receive a response from their call to the universe is this kind of openness. It's openness is a kind of epistemic humility. It's because they're open to the possibility that I could just call out and something will respond the thing responds. The thing is more likely to respond. And that that very same um, openness is what will hopefully restrain me from inferring too much about its nature once it does respond, so that the other the other particular theological almost sub-facts are mm-hmm. either inferred much later in the relationship or, like Dale was sketching out, they're inferred by other um, streams.
3: Sure. And, and I, I am... I am actually um, not in opposition to Dale's idea that it may take multiple kinds of um, multiple kinds of approaches to to reach a conclusion. Now, I'll just say that uh, we don't necessarily line up on on properly basic belief. Yeah. Um, but but I will say they that if I could get an answer. To, to one of those larger questions, you know there's a God that can live forever just as a I'll take that one as an example because we use it so often right there, there's a God that is eternal. If I somehow got to that answer, right and, and I could rely on that answer um, in, in the same sort of um, uh, in the same sort of probabilistic way that I could rely on other answers that I trust. so I'm not actually, saying that I have to believe it a hundred percent, right? Because, because I act on all kinds of things where I don't believe them a hundred percent, whatever, whatever that might mean. Uh, yes. so if I could get to one of those answers, we'd be closer, right? But it, yeah. but right now that's, that's my problem. The sort of arguments that I get are all of the, the sort of arguments. They're not arguments I can test. I'll uh, accept for you that, that you feel very differently. About that, right? I, I don't. I don't have a problem with the fact that we don't agree. That's fine with me. Um, but you know, you you, you got to get over the bar for one of these things. You you got to you got to uh, yeah. There's a there's a God that has an eternal torment chamber, or he doesn't. I don't care what the answer, question is, but that's an eternal question. Or, or, or he can, or he's all knowledgeable. See, I don't, I don't even know how you could possibly be perfectly knowledgeable. Because somewhere in there, you will run into an infinite regress issue about some kinds of knowledge. And and so, I, you know, it, it's those sorts of things where you just have to claim a properly basic belief, right? I, I just believe there is a God that is all knowledgeable. And I can't get there, um, even, even probably. Yeah,
0: yeah I would echo that. I I like what Paul said earlier on about uh, reminding us that you know people who engage in philosophy are are seeking the truth, and I think all of us are, uh, are are seeking the truth. I think when we're having conversations like this, it's it's useful just to remind ourselves that we're all starting from the same point. We're all seeking truth. We might arrive, we might go by different routes, we might arrive at different conclusions but our our purpose and our our goal is is pretty much the same so let's uh, give each other some slack on on that and uh you know see if we can can work work together to the to the same to the same conclusion so i want to to fully endorse uh uh, that sentiment and in, in the broader field of philosophy and other things you know science and philosophy don't have to be uh uh, logheads they don't have to be enemies in fact I, I don't think they are um and you know we're we're seeking for just let's use as many tools as we've got to uh, that are available to to edge a little bit closer to the truth and I think where where I have an issue is is where people reach a conclusion and then state that that is fundamentally the right answer and, and no other answer could be considered i think all all the best philosophers uh, are are, are people who who don't stop at that point? You know, they're constantly saying, "Well, yeah, that 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 looks like it's right, but it might not quite be right." You know, and uh, yeah. let, let's investigate get somewhere else. And I, and I think we, it would be good to remind ourselves that you know, doesn't matter how sure we are about something, we could we could still be wrong. So so let's uh, you know, give each other a bit of slack and and acknowledge that we're all seeking for the right answer.
2: Yeah, there's a stereotype of uh, the way wisdom sounds, and it often is portrayed as this very confident, affirmative, you know, aphorism-driven statement of, of what is, uh, you know, the, the, the holy man sitting on the mountain, uh, when, when you approach him, tells you what it is in a very concise, <laughs> confident way. When in fact, you know, a lot of our working examples of, of, of wisdom sound a little bit more you know, maybe like our conversation, it's a little bit seeking and searching and querying and uh, sentences that end like this rather than like this. Uh, so it's more wisdom is actually kind of interrogative process rather than a confident result. And you see people at the, at the cutting edge of the sciences, for example, they're very aware of all the darkness, all the unanswered questions facing them. Whereas you know the public that receives the scientific, receives scientific wisdom as it trickles down through the various uh, institutions tend to have the mistaken impression that we just have a kind of confidence and near completeness in this
4: in this picture.
3: Right, that, that that science has spoken, and and there, so we do have that sort of mistake, don't we? Where we where we treat science as equivalent to "thou shalt" from yeah. from a holy book, right? And and there is that danger, and. And we let the, we let the really wise guy on the mountain speak to us in sound bites, <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, so there's a, there's a real problem. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, uh, of thou shalt in, uh, in, in either realm. Um, I, I don't know. Someone once said to me, uh, a guy named Sean that I, that I worked with, uh, uh, years and years ago, he's a, he's a physicist and he said, uh, truth is a process of successive approximation. Hmm. And that has worked on the um, oh, for 30 years now, right? It's, it, it's quite a, it's quite a powerful thing, but it's not a great soundbite. <laughs> um, so yeah, we've got to be careful about the hard conclusions.
2: Can I, can uh, I just give some, a quick pushback?
1: Because please okay so in the first place I hear I and agree with all three of you that there's a big problem when people display an unwarranted confidence in in something and, and that often happens and you know I'll, I'll confess maybe sometimes doing the show sometimes I'm guilty of doing that myself uh, you know I'm, we're all human but there are some cases where people are warranted I I, I am warranted in being a a confident person in saying one plus one equals two or Rene Descartes conclusion that uh, Paul taught us about um, you know I think therefore I am this at least some things are things that we should be placing that amount of confidence and confidence in because we know it that strongly I don't care about the naysayers I I know this to be true Um, you know other examples uh, so we were talking about consciousness and um, I, I know that Andrew and, and Matt will have a different opinion, but I, I'm more in Paul's league when it comes to these subjective facts that we just know about consciousness or, you know, De- Rene Descartes' conclusion. So I don't I don't think it's helpful to just sweep everything away and say we should doubt everything. There, there are some things that, no, we, we can really know this without doubt. Um, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to sort of, <laughs>
3: Come back on that, or... <laughs> Matthew, Matthew. do you want look? Um, okay, so there's a bone Matthew. in the middle of this. Uh, <laughs> who wants the bone, Matthew? Do
0: you want? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, yeah, it was a response to my comment, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm quite happy to give. Certainly on on um, I, I think there's categories of things. Absolutely, now I'll, I'll endorse that. Dale, and uh, yes, one plus one is two. Yes, we can we can all be confident on that. There are multiple ways in which we can can demonstrate that i'm not sure how that were how that yeah i'm not really sure how that works for the bigger things you know one of one of the most confident uh, theories in science is uh, the theory of uh, evolution but there are still technicalities in the process that that works that we're not confident on. we might be very confident on the wider picture but the nitty-gritty the detail the how uh, of, of various uh, Features and various forms and various characteristics. We're not entirely sure. So we're and so for 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 bigger pictures like that and for the existence of, of God, somebody might be absolutely certain uh, in um, uh, in in the, their belief uh, in a God, but it's belief, not a not a demonstrated certainty. And um, so yeah, people can be absolutely sure about things that aren't true. So, and I think there's a blurring from from the small and the nitty gritty that we can know to the bigger picture things where it becomes far more blurred. Yeah, that's that-
3: my thought. That is exactly my thought too. As the sophistication or complexity of a claim increases, um, I think it is much harder to make a definite, uh, to to create a definite position on the on the back of a of a of a highly sophisticated claim uh, versus a, a much simpler claim.
2: I uh, I think I'm uh, I think I would agree I agree with Dale that uh, at least in principle there are uh, one could have warranted certainty about all sorts of things, including theological claims. And it could be that what strikes us as complicated, once we really understand it turns out to be the simplest thing, that, I mean, I'm, again, it's, it's possible that the fact that God exists, that what is ontologically prior is, that maybe, once you, once you understand it, that could be as clear as uh, Descartes and Comico, who's possible. And in fact, there's an analogy there, right? They're both disclosures of some core, logical, conscious fact, and... Uh, so, uh, so yeah, definitely. Even, even, you know, the core, the core of the claims could be um, known with a high degree of certainty. And, uh, and Matthew's example of evolution, my, 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 sense of it as an outsider to the field is that, you know, when you get to the the core process of of natural selection, uh, there's a kind of logical truth there almost. You know, something to the effect, mm-hmm. yeah, just in the space of possibilities with enough you know enough chances order will take hold. it's almost it's a quasi-mathematic fact order order disorder because order repeats and disorder does not repeat so we'll fill up fill up possibilities oh i I love what
0: you've just said i'm going to steal that phrase i
3: i I want to say that i made this kind of appeal earlier in the show about um about knowledge It, it may be that that knowledge is something that happens without a Pre-dependent idea on you know just through process we we get something ordered, <laughs> uh, you know that's sort of what we're saying about about evolution here that that out of out of just this process this this sort of uh, living order occurs it didn't it didn't depend on anything in particular uh, although um, you know there was a, the whole discussion about about necessity, right? So I'm not trying to rehash that, but but I think I think that's right. I think um, you know evolution. Certainly, we we have the process of, of natural selection, and um, it's not entirely random, right? And it can occur, and uh, as far as we can tell, it did occur. Um, you know, without a kickstart of a mind. Uh, although Dale, I wonder what you think about.
1: This. Yeah. So so I guess. Two, two things, so in, in the first place, regarding the complexity, so in the first place, uh, I don't believe this, but many theologians would say God is the ultimate symbol, right, he has divine simplicity, the, that attribute, um, so that could be challenged, maybe God is the ultimate in simplicity, but the, the main point I wanted to make is that I don't think that complexity in and of itself entails that we have to have doubt, um, I understand what you're saying, uh, in terms of evolution right we have certain ways where we're reasoning and inferring and it's based on multiple data points where we may have doubt about each one of those individual data points and that cumulatively adds up to increase our doubt overall um, but in terms of god's existence it if, if you know i'm talking about this properly basic belief type thing that that's a basic belief that's simple that's fundamental it's not composed of Parts or anything like that just because the hypothesis of God has all these different attributes or something and that means he he is complicated that the belief that there is this maximal great being that could be considered simple that that doesn't just because something's complicated doesn't entail that why not to have doubts um, or complicated in the sense that it involves multiple aspects or something like that or detailed study do you know what I'm you know get what I'm trying to say like
3: I do. Um, I, I don't think I agree, but I, I do understand you. I mean, the the thing is that we can have, we so there's sort of two ways to look at this. Uh, a complex belief, uh, well, okay, let's take this out of the area of belief. A complex equation, uh, just as a, for instance, so we can get out of the, of the soft area. A complex equation, you, you feed some numbers in, and it has a right answer. Right. So we can say that the answer is right or wrong and we can have a belief about the nature of of that answer as being right or wrong. However, I still think that the very nature of having to go through the steps to uh, to say, well, there is a right or wrong answer implies that we should be careful about our declaration that that we are certain about the answer. Um, so when you when you talk about a, a God, yes, you can absolutely have a uh, whatever belief you want to have, and assign whatever degree of probability you want to assign to to a God, right? And, and I mean, you can assign it a hundred percent likelihood if if that is how you feel about it. But I think that to do that, you're not giving proper credit. Um, to all of the things that go into establishing a higher degree of belief than is warranted.
1: So for okay, so for you, your objection doesn't so much apply to the properly basic belief route, but let's say I'm reasoning to God through multiple steps, I think is the way the way you put it.
4: Each of those Well reasoning
3: about the nature of God. Oh, well, okay. We can use that. We we can leave the nature of God. The nature of God to me seems to be complex, but let's 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 talk about it stepwise and not about the nature of God. So yes, maybe maybe we have to go through a lot of steps.
1: So what what if just just because there are a lot of steps doesn't inherently prove that one has to have doubt. I one could hypothetically be a hundred percent have a hundred percent knowledge for each and every single one of those steps, and therefore the conclusion would be one hundred percent foolproof in, in knowledge obviously now practically speaking or realistically speaking that that very rarely occurs especially in the case of evolution there, there are usually always room for doubt um but i'm just saying hypothetically the, the correlation that you're making it's complicated there are multiple steps therefore there has to be doubt isn't necessarily the case you could have 100 percent knowledge yeah for all of those sure. steps
3: Yeah, so, so we're, we're, we're in lockstep there. Okay. It is possible, but when, when I, but that's not actually, that's not actually, that's sort of a, that's sort of hiding the problem here. Because the, the question was about, uh, was about, am I probably correct? Right? And so hypothetically, there is a very small chance, um, that I'm absolutely correct. But even you in, in, in re-describing this admitted that it is more likely that, uh, that there is room for doubt. And, and so, uh, you know, I don't have a, a properly basic belief in a God. Uh, mm-hmm. of, and, and, and so just a, a, the way I approach the world, okay, maybe, maybe you're right. Um, but as far as I can tell, and, and by the way, this is, this is not an attempt to this almost sounds disparaging. I'm just pointing out the nature of our disagreement. Yes. It seems to me more likely that you're wrong. And so that's not intended to, to be barbed in any way. That's just you know pointing out the way that we're doing this. It, it seems to me more likely. Uh, I, I can't get to where you are using using the information that I have in my hands.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I, I can't demonstrate to you. So I, I get that. My saying a properly basic belief is just meaningless to you. I, I can't use that as proof, and, and that's why I would rely on natural theology and, and arguments like the Kalam or ontological argument or something like that, which uh, would possibly have a chance to convince you. But yeah, those, those are composed of steps. We, we call them premises or conditions. So yeah, there, there could be areas of doubt in those premises, and, and that would cause you not to to think the argument is logically sound or something like that. So yeah, if that's, if that's all you're saying, then I totally agree with you
2: guys. Uh, yeah, of course. And, and
4: that's, Mark, Mark,
2: yeah, um, yeah. I can just jump in my, um, my uh, experience with some of the traditional arguments, um, for example, the cosmological arguments, it's almost like the problem is not the steps. Typically you can work them out. So there aren't, too many steps, uh, mm-hmm. but the problem is that each premise has built into it almost all of philosophy. Right? So right. If, if, you're, if you're running a, a cosmological argument and, and you want to use the word cause, well, we can you know, even before we raised the specter of Hume's problem, um, wonder wonder exactly what we mean by cause and effect. I mean, this is endemic to any kind of investigation, I guess, but yeah. I, for, in my own, my own experience with these arguments, the reason I, I just don't feel I've ever I'm not sure a lot of my belief is really weighted too much by these arguments, which I tend to be balanced uh-huh. pretty agnostic about. It's, it's because they, they involve so many deep, vague philosophical terms in the premises that I'm just not sure what to make of it by the time we get to the conclusion. In fact, I want to stop <laughs> at each premise. I was like, wait, wait, before we go on to premise two, we need to talk You know, maybe for a hundred years about what we mean by causation or what we by movement
1: and and to be fair, just for for the sake of balance, you you also feel this way about atheist arguments, like the problem of evil and stuff. You think that or the hiddenness of God, which is, I know, a, a favorite of Andrew. You think those those arguments suffer the same problem as as that's Christian? Right. Yeah. Is that is that right, Paul? Or?
4: that's right. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, the the problem I'm talking about would be almost an, an endemic to to philosophical argument, um, gotcha. but. Uh, you know, the, I, I should think more about what I'm saying here because it's not that I don't have any philosophic positions, so clearly some arguments work for me and some, some don't. The theologic arguments say, Well, you know what, the, some some version of the design argument I think has fed into my belief making, but it's a it's a really complicated version of design which takes in, like Dale had referred to the, the Augustine type experiences, the like every every little uh, apparent dialogic encounter with, with a superperson would be uh, Uh, like a miniature design argument, or an additional premise loaded into, sub-premise loaded into a design argument. Uh, So I think that that's played a life in my my belief. But the cosmologic and ontologic, I'm not sure, or the the moral argument, they're they're interesting to talk about, but I don't think they've budged my belief in the needle either either way.
1: Okay, so one, I think we've covered, one last question that I've written here, and that that covers everything that I've uh, got here, but it's, so you sort of hinted at the the, what wisdom is and within the context of religion what what would you say is the difference between religious knowledge and religious wisdom and and how they sort of relate to each other and uh, just as sort of a f- quick follow-up does true religious wisdom require a diviner's source as uh, a divine source or something like that in your opinion or uh, wisdom wisdom versus
2: knowledge you know, the the reductivist side of me wants to say, well, surely all wisdom would reduce to knowledge, but it would be a special subclass of, of knowledge, uh, probably including what we'd call pragmatic knowledge. But that pragmatic knowledge would be knowledge about real world changing conditions and knowledge of valuable ends to pursue and you yeah. know knowledge of the processes that get you to those ends. So, um, you know, a lot of what we mean by wisdom, I think, could be captured with a few steps by...
0: Would it be fair to categorize wisdom as the application of knowledge? I think that's a lot of
2: it, eh? Yeah. Yeah, a, a, application of knowledge to um, creaturely ends uh, or some, something like that. Maybe not just creaturely, but whatever. The, the ends of the uh, of this uh, experiences um, Yeah, yeah the, the
1: pragmatic. I, I just want to see it as the, the power of discernment. So perhaps you could say it, it's knowledge of how to discern religious knowledge or religious truths or something like that or yeah re- religious uh, application or something like that um, yeah I, I actually like the way you said that as a subclass of knowledge I'm going to I'm gonna steal that for myself.
2: So. <laughs> <laughs> well I really like this idea of discrimination being one of the, the key features of the wise I, 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 I like that a lot I know in Sanskrit there's a term for that kind of discrimination that's characteristic of the wise I think it's uh, the term for discrimination of the kind Dale's referring to, which this I think it's, again, it's reducible probably to knowledge. It's it's probably from long discerning experience where <laughs> the discerning came in again, but um, through that long experience, knowing how to distinguish. You know, I I, I like the example always of you're faced with a, a shelf of books and you have a free afternoon, and all you have to go on is the spines, the titles on the spines and the author's name maybe, and just the look of the book. And somehow I, I like the idea that, that this kind of... Uh, um, discriminatory power Dale's referring to would, would give you a good chance of picking the book most likely to lead to a fruitful afternoon of exploration. And then mm-hmm. once you dive into that book, uh, again, your power of discrimination will let you from that book uh, choose five new doors or books to open. And so this autodidactic process of learning, which is this process of linking book to book or webpage to web webpage, is, is guided by this, this, Quality Dale's referring to, but it's mysterious in the end, you know. And maybe that connects to Dale's sub question about what's 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 behind this process. There might be final causes drawing us. I'm open to that idea. Cool.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that that covers it for for my list of questions. Is there anything else that either Andrew, Matt, or or Paul that you guys want to say or about this topic or discuss on this?
2: I, I guess uh, when Andrew was talking, uh, maybe fifteen minutes back about. All of the uh, questions he has theologically, for example, the, uh, the question about hell: is there a hell, or is there not a hell? And how it's hard to know how these particular questions could get answered, you know, by, for example, Dales' route of rational inference. I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to that, you know, to Andrew's concern there. I I guess my own view tends to more and more reduce to this duality. It's a kind of bifurcation in my, in my theology where. There's a growing certainty that there is something there. There's something worth calling superhumans. That's an interesting experience. Um, but there's so much you know, ignorance about the particular kinds of beliefs Andrew was referring to. And I guess my, to put it into, into a question for Andrew, Andrew, wouldn't it be an amazing result for the hard-headed comp sci, empiricist, rationalist? I mean, if Forget about all the particular theological beliefs. If you could just be pretty confident that there is something you know S something there and you have a lot of questions about what it is whether it's ultimate or not what its plans are whether it's good or evil whether it's one or many you know hume raised all these questions in his critique of the design argument he says well even even if it works we 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 have all these questions about uh, whether it's one or many good or bad a child god or uh an ultimate god and um I guess, yeah. Wouldn't you, have to, wouldn't you admit it would be amazing if you could at least have some confidence? There's something real, and it's it's talking to you.
3: Yeah. Look, if if, if I could do that, and this is this is actually why I left the the Christian faith. I I, I hate to repeat parts of my story over and over because listeners got to be pulled to tears. But I double majored in theology and computer science uh, a, a thousand years ago or whatever. Uh, it, it seems like it seems like that long ago. And and uh, you know, I was I was at some point. But at least socially convinced through, through the people around me that really, really believed that there was this, that there was this God out there. And I was willing to devote a certain amount of, of energy in my youth to promoting that idea. Right. And, and so it, it's probably the case that if I could somehow come back to something like that certainty, right? I'd, I'd stop writing code and start, you know, trying to acquaint people with, with whatever degree of certainty I had about You know, uh, about whatever that answer was, right? So you you were talking about the different kinds of answers, child God or, you know, maybe maybe the Christian God or whatever. I mean, if, if I could come back to, to some kind of certainty about that, I'm sure I'd, I'm sure I'd switch to that side. Maybe it makes me sound wishy washy, right? So I'll, I'll I'll accept it. But yeah, it would be amazing. It, It, it would be great to answer the question about whether there's a, a theistic God or, you know, some sort of universal consciousness. Uh, you know, there's a, there's some renewed interest in that kind of thing right now among scientists and, and, uh, you know, panpsychism or, or whatever, uh, whatever the flavor of the day is. And by the way, there, there may be some, uh, I was reading a, a couple of books this weekend about this idea of universal consciousness and, and, uh, you know, matter being a, uh, uh, somehow intrinsically part of, of a mind rather than the other way around. And, you know, those are appealing ideas. And, and so, yeah, I'd switch sides. I'd probably stop coding if, you know, if, 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 if I could get there. It well, would it, be amazing.
2: Well, maybe, maybe the bean is a kind of coder, right? I mean, one of the, we've, we've used all these, <laughs> these beans, you know, clockmaker and maybe the other
3: updated version of the clockmakers yeah so uh, look if i would actually if, if that god is listening i i want to write uh the first book on universal basic right where we actually get to code our own reality i'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to write I'm ready to write that book
0: oh i don't know visual basic is good enough for me
3: <laughs> oh yeah but so are windows boxes
0: I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Oh, no, That's not just... this Windows thing again. <laughs> it's, just... it's never going to end, Dale. It's <laughs> never going to end.
1: Just so you know, they, they were arguing about this last time I was on the show. So <laughs> now I, heard,
0: I heard a bit of the Apple window. Um, um, oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's gonna roll forever. That one. It's gonna yeah. help. I think this. this uh, we're just gonna have to rename this podcast in about two yeah. years' time. That we won't talk about anything else.
3: Dale, I am Dale. I am converting today. I'm, Bill Gates has proved mm-hmm. that there's a hell. And <laughs> <up>. <laughs> I'll
1: take. I'll get it anywhere I can. Right.
0: You're, so you're a con- you're an eternal conscious torment kind of guy now. <laughs>
3: Um, Paul, I, I, I know that we're wrapping up and I wanted to say that this was as I I expected this conversation to be something that, uh, really made me think a little bit and question some of my own assumptions. And I I was, I have been looking forward to this from the very beginning and it was as pleasurable as I thought it would be. And so thank you. You know, I've realized there were portions of this that were probably sophomore from from your perspective. And I just I just I thank you for being willing to come on. Do you, do you oh, mind,
1: really? Paul, before we do the wrap up, um, just for the audience, do you mind sort of explaining exactly what what is your religious viewpoint? Are you an idealist or panpsychist or? Oh, good question. Uh, yeah, just give give the audience sort of a, a feeling for what is your your actual stance. Uh,
0: You're laying the ground for a reinvite, Dale. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
2: that's, that's a whole other uh, series that I'd have to think about very carefully. I uh, I think I, I, I maybe I'll you know I hate to avoid a direct answer, uh, but uh, but I, I guess maybe my my answer is uh, the older I get and hopefully the wiser. I don't know. The, the less prone I am to identify with a direct summable answer to these questions, which is not to say that I, I'm just uh, you know more and more swimming in uh, aporia or doubt uh, as I get older but um, but I guess in, you know if we're, if we're getting to, to um, you know kind of theological metaphysical outlook to be summed, I, I, I do find myself comfortable saying, something like, I'm, I'm increasingly confident there is something worth calling you know, superhuman, um, if not outside space and time, I, you know, that's, I don't know about that, but, but something, you know, something which, which a naturalist would say is, 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 is not local, and not, not just human, not just reducible to common sense uh, human psychology, and which, which we've been in contact with. Um, in various ways, in a complicated kind of context. So, you know, I'm happy to perform a pretty cynical reduction on a huge swath of the history of religious revelation, but I, I still think there's some kind of there's a signal to noise ratio there, and uh, I, I still I'm pretty confident in some kind of some degree of signal there, both in you know both in the history of that revelation and then in, in personal experience. And then, but then, but then it's like outside of that core belief, that confidence that there's something, like a capital S something. There's just a lot of
1: doubt. What What is it? Yeah. That's where all the doubt floods in, and that's what keeps alive the uh, seeking. Yeah, yeah. I just want to, even though I'm not a, a host. Yeah, I just want to echo, echo um, as your student. Thank you so much for everything you've done um, for me, and and for also being willing to come on and put up with Andrew and Matt. I, I know it's a bit but
2: fright night but to this too you you um, you have a really wonderful thing here really really wonderful rare thing I think and um, it was really a pleasure and honor to be part of it. Okay. Oh,
3: you're welcome you. back anytime. You are welcome back anytime. Yeah
2: that's
1: cool. and, the, and the same with SNS you're welcome to come on anytime there as well so. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah I'd, I'd be very happy to Um,
2: converse more, that's what
1: this is Yeah Uh, Matt, you're the host, did you have any closing
0: Um, Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts, I was a huge, huge fan of the Mythbusters and they had a soundbite which I think was actually in their opening credits which was, failure is always an option, and I think that's the attitude that I take to opinions uh, that I have you know I'm I'm always prepared to accept that the conclusions that I've come to are are faulty or, or wrong or I have failed. So I I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, but I have one final slightly more light-hearted question uh, for you Paul. Um it, it comes in two parts. Do you watch The Good Place and do you approve of their treatment of philosophy? <laughs> oh,
3: that's excellent. That's excellent.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know I I had so many students come out up to me after class, usually on the first day or the last day of class, and ask me if I've watched this show, and uh, I guess I should I should get around to checking it out at least at this point, I, I haven't watched it yet, though I, I know a little bit about the premise, and I know, is it the, one of the main characters is, is uh, uh, well,
3: well, a... Philosophy. philosophy, yeah. Yeah,
0: so I, um, yeah, there's stack loads of philosophy uh, in there, it's just fabulous.
3: It is, it's a, it's a great show. Oh, uh, Dale, yep. I, I should, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say two things. First, welcome back to Ask an Atheist Anything. Thank you for helping set this show up. Um, I the, the listeners should know that this show didn't happen without you, and it didn't happen not only without you introducing us to Paul, but without your interaction in getting the time scheduled and getting the topics nailed down and... Uh, and so thank you for helping produce this Ask an Atheist Anything.
4: Oh, not a problem. Uh, okay.
3: and You're an
0: honorary atheist, Dale. Welcome <laughs> to the club. <customer. laughs> All right. Not sure how to react to that, but
3: yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing is, um, without rehashing the, the opening of this show, what has gone on with the personal attack against you because – you have taken um, what is. I, I don't agree with the position, but I think it's logically consistent. I, and, and I'm willing to say that I would do things with much less certainty than you would. I am. I am. I stand in opposition to the sort of attack that has been uh, uh, that has been following you around. So you are also welcome here anytime you'd like. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and same with you and Matt. You guys are welcome to come on SNS anytime you guys want as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's. I guess with what you're saying, it's 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 a shame that some sometimes there are people out there that like to do that kind of thing. But you just can't let it affect you. You got to get out there and teach the truth. And thank goodness the vast majority of atheists or skeptics that I've encountered are willing to engage in in sincere conversation and trying to get at the truth so i do recognize that there are a lot of skeptics out there that actually are interested in discussing these things and that's that's why i do it that's that's why i'm i'm here giving my take
3: thank you for listening to this episode of ask an atheist anything matthew will uh, close us off here in a second but if you would like to get in touch with us, if you'd like to get in touch with Dale or Paul through Ask an Atheist Anything, you're welcome to get in touch with us by sending an email to reasonpress at gmail.com. It can be agreement, disagreement. Uh, you can even rant against us. We'd sort of look forward to that. And if you'd like to send us a voice message in the show notes in whatever podcast app you're using, uh, you can touch a link in the show notes to actually send us a voice message. That voice message... Uh, it goes through uh, the Anchor FM website, which is uh, which is our podcast aggregator, and, uh, and it works even on Windows and Android. So uh, touch the link and say hello. We look forward to hearing from you. And uh, this is Andrew Knight saying thanks for listening this week. And Matthew, it's back to you.
0: Uh, thank you, all of you. It's been a pleasurable uh, two hours. It? It's been a bit over two hours, hasn't it? Um, but yeah. Thank you. Uh, I always learn something when discussing philosophy, so I probably don't discuss it enough. If you've got a, a view, listeners, or a, a topic that you want to have, or if you want to throw some philosophical <laughs> stuff at us and uh, bamboozle us even further, please come on and and do it. We'll have a fabulous chat <laughs> until oh, next time. Oh, we Andrew.
3: are. We are. No, we're remiss. I've done something wrong, Paul. How can the listeners get in touch
0: oh, yes, with thank you, you
3: and Dale? We, we can't leave that off. How How is it best to, do you have Do you have a blog, books? We want to publish all of that right now because the listeners need to be able to, to touch base with you if you want them to.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, for now, I have a Ryerson email address. They're welcome to uh, pbally at ryerson.ca. I guess you can link to that.
3: Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes.
2: I, I do post most of my work to... Uh, Phil Papers, which is uh, like an open open archive uh, for researchers, so a lot of my work
3: is there. But but yeah, put a link to Phil Papers because I actually like the site too. So yeah, that'll be there. Okay, Dale, um, this is going to drop in the Skeptics and Seekers feed too. You should give that contact uh, info. Yeah, sure.
1: Uh, So uh, anyone can go to the blog site at skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com and check out the podcasts and many of the blogs along with sources that we have there. Uh, you can leave a comment to contact us or send us an email at skepticsandseekers at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. Matthew? That's it. Done. Thank you. Until next time. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks again for having me on.